Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 74. We are back to finish up our reread of uh, volume 18. That uh, should be no trouble at all. Uh, of course, there's no episode news. We're on a break until summer. So that could mean June. That could mean July. We don't really know. Probably middle of the year, either way. So for now, we'll be uh, cruising through our reread. Site's kind of sleepy right now. The form is kind of sleepy, and that's to be expected uh, during a, a break of this magnitude. Anyway, that gives us time to make some progress on this project. As usual, we're going to be trading off narr- narrations for each episode. And Azil, you have the floor for the first section, which is uh, Bowels of the Holy Ground. Indeed, and what what a fitting title that is <laughs> for this episode. So... Uh, continuing with the end of the previous episode, uh, we see a very detailed artwork there with uh, a horror vibe, I think. Uh, very classical looking as we see these hooded figures make their way down into the bowels of the earth, literally. So I like how the scene is cut into like these small panels showing the various steps of it, people getting down rocks and everything. And I think for all the people who love Dark Souls uh, out there, you know, this is like this one page I think uh, should be really appreciated because it conveys... Uh, to me, that sense of exploration, descending into uh, unknown, forsaken places, that kind of stuff. The characters are pretty unsavory too. The the, the little context, contextual clues we get of who else is pers- you know pursuing this. Yeah, they look like hooded, creepy dudes with grins on their faces. And, pretty, pretty much, yeah. yeah there's these, yeah. you know, they're basically the, the cultist type. Yep. So as they reach the last rise, we see the scene down below before Joachim and uh, Nina, and it's a, a pagan orgy in the purest sense of the term. So, you know, not not what just, you know, random people having sex, you know, as it tends to be understood these days, but a wild, unbridled reverie of dancing, eating, singing, and of course, you know, uh, banging. And uh, I, I like how Mira constructs the double page with, uh, you know, the fuming cauldron in the center, then the little figures, uh, the crazed dancers going around circle, and then in the other circles, you get the grab of people uh, fornicating. So the next page is a close-up of the same scene where we see Naruto explain what draws these people there, a desire to be freed from their sordid existences that we saw uh, previously, you know, all the misery and everything. So... To them, sin is a way in which they can do it, abandon themselves in this uh, mad debauchery. And uh, on the side of the artwork, I appreciate again that Murat does not uh, shy away from depicting the scene uh, with his usual detailed style while keeping him tasteful enough. I mean, in this episode in general, I don't know what you guys think, but we, we get to see a lot of detailed uh, nude bodies and a uh, scene of uh, explicit sex. But I, I think he manages to uh, stay on the border. You know, it never becomes distasteful despite being graphic. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think well, I think it's only distasteful in the in the intentional sense. Yeah. As, as distasteful as he meant it to be, you know. Like it isn't very, uh, it's not you know entertaining. Yeah, the way the way they're dancing, you can sort of tell there's a mania and an insanity, you know, yeah. going on here. Just the way the limbs are bending and flying around, and In, indeed, I mean, even on the middle page, on the middle uh, panel of that double page, where you see the, the faces thrown back in the mad dance, you know, yeah, it, it shows what kind of state these people are in. It's not like there's nothing really erotic about this. It's just, you know... Yeah. It's not titillating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the word. It's not titillating at all. So It's actually... I mean, this whole thing is kind of, yeah, disturbing, and it obviously becomes more so and even, you know, kind of scary Yeah, as it goes on. I think there's actually a horror vibe, you know, throughout the scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I also true. like the details though, like showing the band. Yeah. <laughs> it's playing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah on, that, on that following page, yeah, you see that's the dudes with the trumpets and the horns and the guitar and drums, all that. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. Also, I mean, as as we're advanced before we do advance too far, like Azil, you mentioned the two page spread mm-hmm. as they first get to the cave. I do like how everything's in focus, and you know, you could tell Mira spent a lot of effort into various forms, and I'm not used to seeing so many figures in so many varied positions. In general, when he draws armies in combat, you know. I think he incorporates some kind of style where he's kind of obscuring a lot of the forms. But here we're seeing all the forms in full focus, you know, because a lot of effort was put into it, I think. Yeah, it's both, you know, I think he both means for it to be detailed and at the same time, again, not, you know, titillating or anything. He just, you know, but yeah, it's it's very, like, it's not something he did lazily. And I think, you know, that's something yeah. I always appreciate is that there's never a, a sense of, not something not being done very, uh, you know, at the utmost level of quality he can muster. Yeah. And so, yeah. It also gives you a, a great sense of the size and space and basically yeah. everything that's going on in the room and the area. And that'll also come in handy later, yeah. sort of understanding uh, the shape of that area. Yeah. And so, like you said, uh, the next page shows us the orchestra, I guess, uh, fueling these festivities, as well as the ominous broth that stands in the center. So, again, you know, I, I mean, on this page, I, I get a very whole-like vibe, you know, which I love, you know, like the, the way uh, Mira teases uh, the sinister contents of what's in the cauldron before showing up the guy who presides over it through a veil of smoke, you know. I think it's a brilliant sequence of revealing the, the goat guy, you know. And so then we see him in full glory. So it's this kind of emaciated man wearing a fold-out goat's head as a ornament. And co- I like how that's revealed. Like we see the form through the smoke at first, and looks very foreboding. Yeah. And then you see, you know, the actual shot, and it's this dude wearing a goat's head. It's a little different. Um, yeah, it's- I think we should point out this time that the the goat itself probably is supposed to be representing uh, Baphomet. I'm assuming, or someone that like someone like Baphomet. <laughs> Because the panel is very similar to the one in Volume Three, when we see the Count's flashback. Yeah, or... indeed, it's uh, yeah, it's something I made to touch upon is uh, sorry, no, no, no problem. So yeah, we we get to see. I mean, to me, it's a, uh, I mean, it's, it's, the imagery is one hundred percent sure to be based on the most famous representation of Baphomet, you know, and it's indeed very clearly uh, a reference to that old shot in Volume Three, and uh. Yeah, I think you've, you know, you've got to give it to Mura for pulling this reference. You know, I mean, I know he does it so consistently and, and so well that you might be tempted not to, to be amazed after a while, but really, I mean, it's insanely cool. He always, you know, he always does it. He always does his references. Like, there's no reason to, to, uh, there was no necessary, no, no necessary reason to, to put it, but still, he managed to make it consistent. So that scene, which we saw in the flashback in volume three, you know, it comes back here and actually, like, it doesn't stop because then, you know, we get to see about Slan, but I, I guess we'll get to that later. But yeah, I think it's a, it's really a brilliant, you know, reference. I think the, the importance of connecting the things, and you're right that it could have just as easily have been some totally different cult from before, or this could be totally different. But I think the effect is that it shows consistency that this is a, this is another power in the world. Yeah. Uh, albeit one that we don't see, we only see much of twice in the entire series, but, it establishes some some consistency, the middle ground between, uh, or the alternate path for the, the the holy and the unholy. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's what makes it great. Is that it's both, you know, it's consistent and it's consistent at such a wide interval that it, you know, kind of takes you by surprise. 
And um, yeah, that's great. So uh, Joachim uh, takes in the scene, and well, he's you know he's clearly not very confident about, about this, you know, like. But Miura becomes him, and he follows. She doesn't look. I think even at this point, she doesn't look quite sane anymore. You know, she's at the top of the. Uh, you know, when you see uh, what says a uh, uh, top panels of next page, mm-hmm. you know, and we also get to see uh, Luca who's looking on from afar, and uh, she realizes what's been going on with Nina probably for for a while. You know, so they get down to the breeding grounds, and uh, we get to see uh, more of these half half demented, you know, uh, looks on a, a group of women who start undressing Joachim as equals to Nina. And, you know, what I find interesting is uh, how Mura chose to portray him. You know, he chose to portray him as uh, in a world where people don't care much, where they take the pleasure where they can and, you know, just cruel to others and everything. And given Nina's lack of personal qualities, she, she's not really someone to, to look out for or anything. But Joachim, he's not in this just to, uh, you know, satisfy his lust or anything. He really wants Nina. He really, you know, I guess loves her. And he's mm-hmm. enduring the situation for her. So, you know, I, I like the fact that in the midst of this debauchery, uh, Mira chose to represent Joachim like that. So, yeah, meanwhile, she's getting undressed herself and uh, clearly is in the mood to party. So she beckons to him. She's being covered in some unknown substance they rub on her. And, uh, yeah, she lays in the midst of other girls and he joins her. Why the ointment? I um, mean, you know, that's something I kind of, it feels strange looking to this episode now. Well, you know, um, I, I think. I assume it's some sort of drug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think it's part of the, the whole thing. You know, uh, Mura, uh, Jose, Luca comments on it uh, later on, and Joachim actually comments on it uh, very soon after that. I think, yeah, yeah. Th- they use drugs. They put drugs in the broth, uh, they put drugs in the fumes, they put drugs on the people. It's, you know, like it's part of the thing, you know, they just, you know, fuck, eat, sing, you know, take drugs. Well, it's just a rave party. Well, it just heightens, heightens the experience. Yeah, it, right. It is a rave. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah. as he joins her, we... Tr- and this is also when it becomes... It starts becoming really surrealistic, too. Yeah. I mean, it's just... I like... I think you, you can see even the subtle difference on Nina's face, you know, when she's first laying down. And, you know, you can kind of see stars all around. It's, yeah. You, you can see sort of their perspective. And then her eyes really gloss over. Yeah, she's she's yeah. not herself anymore. Uh, one thing we do- I do like, I do like the, the transition that happens, the, the hands that come out to interact her, and then we see the, the one sh- uh, sharp panel in, re- in the reality, and then the other panel right, right next to it in this very surreal. Yeah. Kind of impressionistic state. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Uh, you know, yeah, I agree. The, the way we see these two shots, uh, side by side, and, you know, that yeah. perception slipping is pretty great. Although, one thing we didn't mention is that, uh, during the transition, we actually get to see uh, a perspective from the Beherit Apostle, who's looking on from afar. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So that's one thing, is that we see Joachim you know, getting on top of Nina's, and we see that shot of the figures from afar, and these two eyes standing out in the darkness. It makes the scene all the creepier to me, because uh, as a first-time reader, you have no idea who or what this might be at this time. And so, you know, it makes the scene, uh, you know, all the more strange. Yeah, and one thing I think we failed to point out last time about these little panels with the Behirid Apostle watching everything is that, you know, we don't know the intention right now as readers, as you say, but I think it's important to take note of it here so that we understand it later. And really, he's bearing witness to all aspects of what's happening in this region, you know, and it all it all feeds his ultimate conclusion Yeah, about the sacrifice that needs to be made and yeah. 
It's, it's, it's fueling his understanding of all the people that he doesn't understand. He's basically, he's kind of like an alien, really. Yep. You know, he's studying all these people. Exactly. Yeah. He's studying trying them. to understand yeah, their motivations and that's everything. That's exactly that. Yeah. He's, he's studying them. Like you said, like a foreigner, you know, looking at, you know, a foreign entity looking at people and trying to understand what makes them tick. So. Yeah. And you can see his, I mean, his eyes aren't, his, his reaction to seeing this, it's so interesting. Actually, I think, I think it's very interesting. He's not like horrified by what he's seeing. He's merely interested. You know, those yeah. eyes kind of like delighted eyes, like, Oh, weird. You know, just kind of, it's not like he wouldn't have the standard reaction of a standard human seeing. That's like Joachim's reaction. Those aren't the eyes that we see. Yeah. He's, he's almost like, a, I wouldn't say scientist because he's really, yeah, just an onlooker, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, taking it in as an interested party, but nothing more. So very interesting. Um, yeah. Anyway. On the next page, uh, we see uh, a progression of uh, Joachim's uh, slip into a uh, different type of per- perception, where, you know, his perception is completely altered, where he and Nina join at the hips, a F form, along with the people around them, a, a kind of drippy cavity, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see, which is, I think is a, you know, a clear reference to a kind of vaginal, you know, opening, that kind of stuff. It's, uh, I think, it's, oh, it's yeah. what Mira's going for here. Be- it's beyond a reference, really. Yeah. If you look at the top of the yeah. page, it's more like an actual. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't know who to say uh, as far as during goals, but an, an allegory sure. or anything like that. Anyway. Vaginal imagery, very potent. Yeah. We see, which is, you know, again, from Joachim's perception, I can understand. I mean, that makes sense, you know, from what he's, you know, uh, experiencing. So sure. he feels he's then so- going through uh, Nina's breast and he's yet again per- perplexed by this illusion, you know. He had commented earlier that. You know, there was a drug on her, what they had rubbed on her, and, you know, he reiterates that. And he then notices a figure rising out of the cornered smoke. And uh, we see her in full on the next page, and uh, there is no doubt that it's Slan. And again, mm-hmm. going back to what we said earlier, uh, you know, I mean, it's, you know, who appropriate that she would be the one to preside over such a thing? And, you know, like, once you see it, like, how could she not? And it's, ju- I mean, just like that, just as Conrad with the rats. Yeah, you understand a bit more about the world. It makes sense. You know, like what happened in volume three, it makes sense. You know, all these things, and you can imagine everything, on, you know, around the world, you know, in secret caves where people perform these kind of weird rituals. You can tell, well, yeah, yeah, Slan is behind these things. And that makes sense. So. And they're, the point, I mean, the point is they're, they're giving themselves over to pleasure and all those, you know, all the emotions that come from a, something like this. And, and, and yeah, it draws her attention. And as we know, later in the volume, we get a little more specific information about the God hand and where they congregate, you know? Yeah. When, when there's, when there's any great darkness, any con, uh, concentration of darkness uh, among humans, you know, they, they'll be there. Yeah. And so this gives us a visual representation of that. Um, so well, I think it, that's really judgy in this case, man. This is just good, <laughs> clean fun they're trying to have here. I mean, just having a good time. <laughs> what, what? I don't need to make that judgment call. Mira makes it for us, calling it <laughs> sinful. Well, you know, the thing is, uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to say. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not like just slant presides over, you know, uh, sexual, you know, feelings or whatever. It's, I mean, you know, it's, it's a certain kind of debauchery, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and what goes on is this cave and we're going to, you know, I'll touch up on that soon enough, but it's not just, you know, they're not just in it for a good time. It's not innocent or anything like that. So I think there's a very specific kind yeah. of evil that uh, she feeds into and at the same time feeds into them. You know, it's a, it's like that kind of relationship, of course, with, with the God hand, you know, they are in 
people's heart and you know people feel them so it's that kind of stuff so yeah it's, it it makes sense and it's not just like you know a loving couple i think like that wouldn't you know sure. be able to feel <laughs> the same thing so yeah. well i also think it's not even like it's not even like you know a bunch of hippies like getting high and getting it on either they're, the the sin is part of the attraction it's what they're you yeah know, yes. looking. yeah it's you know there's a, a part of evil it's part of the thrill there's a kind of evil in there you know uh and it's clear from what we see from the way you know everything goes on there's, there's evil in there and that's what you know she raised to and actually, we didn't mention it, but we also get to see a shot of the crazy old guy with the crucified bird who yells that it's a fire <laughs> yeah. goddess. And it's interesting because, you know, he'd previously referenced. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't say it, but it's kind of because it's kind of obvious, you know, these are the heretics that part of this witch hunt is all about uh, the heretic hunt that's happening on the surface that the Holy Iron Chain Knights are here to protect Moscus from is, you know, there's these uh, incidents are becoming more and more. Uh, what's the word? There are frequent. more incidents of yeah. heretics. Yeah, yeah frequent. That's more the word. Frequent. Sorry. What? And you know what I think is interesting about that is the relationship between the Holy See tightening its grip in a scene like this. Yeah. You know, I feel like this is like the counterstroke to the strictness of the Holy See and the teachings and yeah, kind of the much, yeah. not not even just that, but also you know the nervousness of the refugee camp. This is like the the after effect of that people just cut loose yeah, yeah really. kind of I, cultic, I think you know. it's a vicious cycle where you know the more uh, the uh, you know the holy see tightens the grip and you know Jose uh, deprives these people the more they need a release uh, and so the more they hate them the more they uh, exact revenge by killing priests or everything and then you know it's a it's a vicious cycle that fills into itself and of course it's uh, I think both sides are pretty clearly played on by the golden you know uh, in order mm -hmm. to achieve the goal i will say i think i would prefer this over bashing my head into the floor a thousand <laughs> times in the morning so. yeah, yeah well um, I, i'm wondering like it's a, it's extreme examples but <laughs> just like real life i think this is the way to go yeah yeah, yeah well you know it depends uh, how you end up I, you know it's always the same i mean i it's probably best to be the gold dude with, with a pile of, of women, you know, than uh, some random loser that gets, you know, slaughtered in a corner or something like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, Luca sees it as well from afar, and uh, she, uh, you know, herself did you see that the heretics must have put drugs into whatever hellish soup they're brewing down there. So I like I like that her perspective is a little different. Yeah, you know hers is it's a little less intense, a little less you know I don't know clear. Yeah. Whereas the vision that we get as readers is very clear. You know, and the one she gets, uh, maybe it's because of the you know she didn't have as many uh, yeah she's, drugs in her system. You know? Yeah, I think she's from afar and less affected. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just you know simply that you know she's not in the midst of it. So I just like that Mira bothered to show is that it's the idea that it's like it's not really a hallucination necessarily mm -hmm. that you know there is some form of slan yeah, present I, I think and that she can yeah I I think you know yeah. much like with Conrad and the rats uh, I think she is present in a way you know like she manifests in the smoke you know it's um I mean we'll get to that later in the podcast when the skylight talks to us but basically like at this point you know the golden they can't uh, manifest themselves physically like you know yes. but, but well I, i'm not saying that there's any question that she is in fact there but just from luca's point of view she she's explaining it by thinking it's a hallucination mm -hmm. or she's inhaled smoke but it's actually something really is there yeah yeah, yeah. she just doesn't understand that yeah yeah indeed so, Azil, you agree that, that Slan's not a hallucination in this scene. There's, she's seeing it as a result of the drugs. 
yeah, no, I mean, yeah, she's not, I, I agree that Slan's not an hallucination. I mean, Slan is there in any case. Although, that being said, Do you th- the, how to say, the drugs might be facilitating their perception of uh, her presence. Yeah. That's a thing. That, but my, what I think is an interesting question is whether, whether she was being affected by the drugs or not, would she still be able to see her? Like, you know, mm-hmm. she could be there, but maybe she's invisible to, you know, the naked eye. Yeah. Unless you're under the effects. Hon- the honestly, drugs. I mean, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, it's possible she might be more clearly seen where you on the drugs. It's, it's yeah. possible it's just a fleeting moment. And so when we see yeah. it from Luca's perspective, it's already disappearing. It's possible just a distance obscures it. Uh, what I think is true is that, like, I mean, I don't think there's a question that uh, Joachim is completely, you know, like, I mean, there are drugs in there and these guys are half crazy and oscillating. But at the same time, it's very clear that Slan is in there. So, like, I mean, they are not just dreaming her. No, I I do think that the drugs certainly play a role here, and not even just with their ability to see Slan, but what I find interesting is the page right before we see Slan, uh, the panel where Joachim and Nina seem very conjoined, you know, see yeah. all those different body shapes in the background. It really, really reminds me of uh, Volume 34 when we see Slan appear after uh, emerging. Oh, right. All of the different conjoined yeah, bodies that, that, that are tunnel. there. Yeah, sort of that true. realm, you know, to represent her, yeah. Yeah. And it's also in a very kind of cave-like environment, or at least there, it's all surrounding her, right? It's this giant uh, kind of uh, kaleidoscopic, you know, bodies all around her like that. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> that the drugs may have allowed them to see at least a glimpse of a part of the astral world in addition to seeing Slog. Like, it's giving them heightened perception, you know, not dissimilar from, you know, what magic users use to uh, heighten their perception of the astral world. Well, the problem is that it, what we see in uh, Volume 34 is not, I don't think it's the astral world, you know, it's more a visual representation of uh, the realm of uh, human, you know, uh, emotion and part of the human psyche that the gold hand represents. You know, I don't think there's part of the astral world that's a, a giant brain or, you know, just a sea of rats or anything like that. So I think it's more illustrative. But certainly... uh you know, I mean, I think the whole sexual imagery, you know, beat uh, the one with uh, Joachim and Nina. Actually, there's another one right after that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, right after the, the scene where Slan is shown and disappears. Uh, I think that and the other thing uh, also, yeah, they all relate to Slan. You know, if only because she's the one in charge of that kind of stuff and so that imagery uh, fits her. But yeah, yeah I don't think, uh, I mean, I don't think there's enough uh, evidence to to venture that this would be the astral realm. I, I think it's a bit far-fetched, to be honest. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, continuing, we get to see uh, more of uh, the orgy, you know, the blow of bodies, before focusing again of, on Joachim, who looks himself uh, pretty crazy right now, like his eye is completely, you know... Yeah, he yeah. looks he looks kind of horrified and you know. Yeah, he's yeah, he's you know, I mean you know, clearly in a agitated state. So we see Nina uh, bring her other partners to climax in no uncertain detail, and uh, then Joachim's come out, comes as well while still hallucinating. 
So I well, yeah. This is like this is one of the most. Uh, this page just by itself yeah. might have the most like surreal, metaphorical, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, sexual imagery on it. Even more so than that last one. They're literally, you yeah. know, like in this pool that's clearly a vagina with a clitoris, and there's all these bodies around them, you know. And yeah, but- you can see, you know, like penises swimming in it, and then his, you know, line "I'm falling." Clearly, it's a representation of him climaxing. So it's a really weird. Yeah, just sort of uh, interesting. It's the it's the weirdest depiction of sex, but also <laughs> at the same time technically really very accurate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, you know, I mean, I've, I must nothing to add to what you said. It's exactly that, and I, you know, honestly, I just find it it's pretty crazy, but it's also you know goddamn interesting. I think you know, I, I think oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it sh- it's really creative. It shows, yeah, it shows Murat's creativity, and because again, from Joachim's uh, point of view. You know, like he's still hallucinating. He's still like he yeah. feels in his head everything. And you know, mm-hmm. like as he you know climaxes, he you know we see himself elongating, whitening, in short, becoming his own you know semen. Uh, yeah. You know, which then drips out of you know Nina and everything. But you know, like the way he himself would transfer into that, I think it shows, like you know, how the drugs affect his uh, perception. And it's just you know, it just makes for. A great, you know, a great page, you know. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy yeah. stuff, but it's a, it's a great page. And it's pretty, it's really daring, too, because, I mean, on its face, you know, someone, you know, just flipping through this, you know, and looking at it would be like, you know, what the fuck, yeah. you know? So <laughs> I, I think it's actually, it, you know, it's really cool stuff. Yeah, you know, one of the things is, how do you, like, how to say, how can you depict on paper uh, someone hallucinating, like someone on LSD, for example, you know, when you get these people yeah. telling you, oh, yeah, I see people's auras and, you know, they're glowing, the walls are moving. It's kind of crazy stuff. And so I think uh, for Mira to, and especially in a context of an orgy, you know, where it's just, you Yeah, know, a sexual relationship, yeah, in addition to having, being, being drugged, it's heightened. Yeah, so it's just, you know, I, I think it's very, it's a very difficult thing. And I think Mira's pretty ballsy to have attempted it. And I also think he's actually uh, very successful in, in how it came out. So, uh, yeah, pretty great. I don't think he's, he's never done anything really like this since either that I can think of. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's done some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, for example, uh, what he did with, uh, Ubik, you know, when the, on the shots that references Bosch is some pretty cool stuff. But this one is, oh, yeah, sure. this one is very unique because I don't know. It's just, you know, it reminds me in a way of the eclipse, you know, the, fa- the faces on the walls, you know, the very yeah. eldritch, uh, landscape. It's a. It actually reminds me of the apostle creation that Daiba made for. Yeah. Age, also, like, yeah. The conjoined. Yeah. Also the same bodies. Yeah, I agree. But the difference is like this is more powerful to me because it's combining visual and sensual and drugs like all into one you know big soup basically. Yeah. Yep, it's uh, pretty much ba- a lot of basic sort of human sensations and how would you visually depict yeah. that you know and it's it's pretty cool especially when you add in like the that the subject matter is you know is potentially taboo. Yeah, well, it's not, you know, I mean, J- Japanese, uh, the Japanese society is less, how to say, uh, Puritan than, uh, all the societies, yeah. I would say. So, but yeah, still, it's pretty, you know, I mean, there's no, uh, how to say, that is pretty daring stuff. So, <clears throat> anyway, um, so yeah, the deed is done, you know, and, uh, Mira, I, you know, it's interesting again, Mira takes, uh, Nina takes Joachim's face in her hands and, uh, kisses him on the, on the lips, you know, and I think it underlies again the strangeness of their relationship. You know, it's, it's a very twisted, very strange relationship. 
because you know that what they've been doing and still she's like it's like they're just lovers you know so she then takes him to the goat guy who uh so that uh, joachim can uh, convert to their cult and uh joachim's still dizzy from the drugs you know his head is seen you know like spinning and everything um <clears throat> he i think that panel that the following panel i think he's seeing what he thinks is a real goat head like a real a live goat like i think he thinks it's blinking at him or something no i actually have no idea uh because it focuses on the eye, and you see right before that his perception appears to be, you know, yeah, I, changed. I know there's a focus on the eye. You know, I always took it to be like uh, the actually the dude inside the the head, uh, mm. looking through the hollow dude eye. You know, that's how I always took it. But uh, okay, you know, maybe it's just me. I don't know. It's, well, before you can't. It's hard to really tell whether like it doesn't. You can't really see the pupil before. All you can really see is it looks kind of glossy and glassy, the eye. But, I mean, that could just also be just the image. It could be, you know, just up to interpretation. But it's also here, it's like you can see a pupil and it's almost more like like a living eye. Yeah. yeah. Whether the guy's looking through it or whether it's like the goat head seems more alive now. Because mm-hmm. it's glossy on the next page, too. So it's it's hard to say whether there's really been any transition there. Yeah, the thing is, I mean, because we see it in close-up and the next page not, I mean, it's yeah. a bit difficult to... So there are a few differences, just real quick. I'm looking, I'm just doing a quick comparison shot of when we first see the goat versus when we see the goat now. Mm-hmm. And in the, in this, these newer shots, he is more monstrous. Like the hair yeah, look from at the his thing. hands. Yes, his, exactly. His hands, the hair going down the chest. It's it's slightly more like a realized goat, similar to what we see in volume 19. Not completely, but similar to that. Yeah, at the same time, it's also, I mean, it's still, you know, the first time we see him, it's uh, less detailed than on that page, you know, a specific page where you see the close-up on the eye. But, uh... Hmm. I see what you mean. Either way, I mean, in the, in the state, Joachim's in it. Uh, he's in, I mean, uh, he, it's very possible. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah. you know, uh, more to that point. Uh, I mean, he says he has snake penis. Yeah, and the it's, snake it's, penis it's, is it's what I was about to say, actually. <laughs> so let me get to that. Sorry. So, yeah, he recites uh, their stupid, you know, I don't know, words or whatever. Uh, and, you know, kisses the heart and the phallus of the goat. And yeah, the, the guy uh, has got uh, a snake's head, whole dot, I also imagine, on his uh, penis. And uh, and yeah, in that scene, you can see Joachim's is very... I mean, when there's a close-up shot of the scene, you can see, I think it shows that Joachim's is indeed hallucinating a bit, you know, in that yeah. regard. And uh, it also, I guess, shows that... Uh, I guess the guy's really into taxidermy, you know, the gold guy. He really loves, oh, yeah, he really loves his shit. <laughs> Maybe wow. as much as he wow. loves, uh, you know, banging chicks or something. That would be a hell of a condom. Yeah, yeah I mean, just, like, really, know. just wow. I never even considered yeah, well, that. Well, you know, I mean, Whenever, when you run a crazy cut, you've got to be a crazy guy. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's grabby. You gotta toss. mean it. You can't just do it by half. Yeah, I mean you gotta. You <laughs> if know, they sense you're just there to get laid, they're not gonna go you, for it. You're gonna wear crazy <laughs> shit and stuff like that. So, anyways, I can't. I, real quick though, yeah. I, I can't look at this snake penis and not think of the comic that Drail, the Grail had drawn of the the goat guy trying to go out on a date and then his snake penis comes out. You know, <laughs> he can't hold himself back. How embarrassing. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what. What's funny is uh, I think Mira only put it uh, put in this in here, so that when uh, the guy is uh, you know stung by the berry apple, yeah. he can have a, a 
nactal, you know, snack penis. Sure. So sure. I think he can have like his boa constrictor python penis. Yeah, I, I, I only see, you know, honestly, I only think he put it there so that he could do that, do that afterwards. So I, I appreciate, I, you know, I appreciate it here because I appreciate it there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I, I agree. That's it's a funny consistency. It, it, I think though, it's it's the heightened danger from Yoa King's perspective from here on out from this. Yeah, you know, he just finished with Nina, and then suddenly he's having to recite words he's not familiar with, kiss a snake penis, and then the soup happens. Yeah, yeah. The thing yeah. is, uh, you know, the, the last part, you know, uh, drinking from the ghoulish broth, you know, and he does, and then he realizes he's got a human finger in his mouth, so he smashes the dish on the ground, and we see various human parts in, them, in there, and mm-hmm. then he, I guess, comes a bit to his senses, and we, we get... Uh, Finally, a close-up shop on the cold run, and you know, of course, it's got uh, human babies uh, boiling in it. Yeah. So you know, like, yeah, again, the horror vibe, you know, thing, you know, I mean, it's something. It, it, you know, what it reminds me of a bit, uh, you know, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, that mm. kind yeah. of, you know. Cra- oh, I was just thinking that. Yeah, crazy stuff, you know, boiling in the. Because I was, yeah, I was thinking of. You know, sort of just the extremity of all this, you know, like the the goat head man and then the snake penis, you know, it's almost like it's trying to top, you know, like the craziest sort of ceremony you've ever seen. And the only thing I could think of sort of on par with it was, yeah, the heart ripping ceremony from (laughs) Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That that being said, uh, I think it's worth noting that, uh, how to say, you know, there there have been situations where people were starving and everything. And uh, historically, there has been cannibalism of children, you know, uh, in yeah. crazy situations like that. So, uh, well, I was I was thinking about that, too, how it's not just, you know, obviously for the horror aspect, you know, this is very effective. But it also makes sense, giving, given the sort of society they're in right now, you know, where they can't really... You know, there's probably a lot of uncared for children, a lot of people having babies that, you know, it's the same reason people throw children into dumpsters and things like yeah. that. You know, so this cult is capitalizing on it. If not, mm-hmm. you know, if it's not also a consequence of these orgies as well. Yeah, you know, so it's, indeed. Uh, and the people are... It's, an int- it's, 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 not, it's a horrible thing, but I mean, it also actually, it makes a sick sort of sense. Yeah. And, be- and it's kind of a commentary. Especially because they're all starving. So, you know, you get food yeah. by coming into... The- these places, so yeah, it's it's pretty. Of course, it's crazy, crazy and wicked and everything. But you know, there's a sense to it. And uh, again, you know, you gotta give it to Mura for even in a crazy, you know, situation like that, he makes it, you know, consistent and logical. And even in the horror of it, you know, there's a sense and there's a, a purpose and everything. So yeah, and it's it's even deeper because it's like a little commentary on uh, on exactly what's going on there and the consequences of it. Yep. So, you know, Joachim is uh, scared out of his mind and he runs away. And Nina tries to stop him, but then she changes her mind and just starts yelling for everybody that uh, he betrays them and they should get him. So I, I love that hesitation. Yeah. Because you can see she's trying to like, well, hang on. Hey, calm down. And then she like the rejection hits her. Like he's rejecting this whole thing that, he, you know, she had asked him before, you know, come down with me. Will you, will you be, will you come down to hell with me? Will you die with me? And it says, as long as it's with you. And here he is running away, rejecting, screaming from this, you know, ceremony that she brought him to. Yeah. So hits her pretty keenly. Yep. So there's a great shot of, uh, all the mad eyes on the shadowed faces as they launch after him, you know, the white ends mm-hmm. outstretched on a, on a black background and they're about to catch up to him, but he falls 
off the edge of a cliff because he's reached uh, the edge without noticing it. And uh, we see this shot of Nina standing uh, over, you know, looking triumphant, but still half crazed, you know, as he, yeah. as he falls off, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the darkness. Yeah. <clears throat> and at the end, I of feel the like she only has that, that blanket because, you know, it kind of adds to the shot, you know, it really gives her sort of an air of authority and, yeah. you know, yeah. it just makes it so much, it makes it really interesting actually. Yeah. She, she's sure. only half covered, you know, I mean, I presume it's because uh, of the cold, but yeah, she, you know, it's very, she really, you know, that shot of her looking at him as he falls is yeah. very, you know, very telling. And of course, you know, what's even more telling is who she breaks down afterwards, but I'll uh, give it to you then. I just wanted to point out, like, that was all one episode. Yeah. That's like a <laughs> yeah. super intense, lots and lots of uh, content. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, the thing is, like, you know, these are volumes I think people tend to, I wouldn't say gloss over, but because Guts is not in every episode, it's not, you know, like, these days people complain when we spend too long on Rickert and Griffiths in Falconia. With Locus and Rakshas and all that crazy stuff and the, you know, the Bakiraka, but these are episodes featuring Joachim and Nina, you know. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. you know, these guys are, you know, second tier characters, you know. But, you know, at the same time, so much stuff happens there and we learn so much about Slan, about the things, about the world. So they are very, you know, packed with content. And, uh, I think it's really, people do this themselves a disservice by, you know, glossing over them and just, I don't know, thinking, ah, oh, this is just the origin scene. There's nothing to see there. Well, there's a lot of stuff to see there if you, you know, pay attention. And that's something in Berserk is that every episode, if you pay attention, there's a lot of uh, value to derive from it, a lot of juice. So, yeah. It's actually it doesn't, the... uh, lend itself to sort of just casual, fun reading. It's like, yeah, you really have to sort of read it with an intentness. Yeah, yeah. It's... In order to in order to appreciate it. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's not like watching Guts, you know, fight monsters or anything like that. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's pretty not... heady stuff. Yeah, it's... It's, it's not, you know, I don't know, Captain America comic book where just, you know, they punch themselves through balls <laughs> and that's it. It's, you know, you, you got to pay attention to the drawings, to the text, to everything, to the situation, to whole things, you know, uh, follow each other. It's It's just, you know, you got to pay attention to it. Yeah. Well, I think that's also the downside of these kind of these, this project is, you know, when we started, we were doing one volume per episode and then we started doing half a volume per episode. And, and there are times we when we should just done, do an episode per episode. Well, <laughs> let's go real deep. Uh, yeah. Zeal had brought up, maybe we should just not try to have a deadline and just go as fast as we go, period, you know? Yeah. I think we that one might result in us doing, you know, one volume, one episode per episode. Yeah, kind of we'll still be at it uh, by the time we are 80, you know. Exactly, yeah. So like at a certain point you have to we have to accelerate things even though there is tons and tons to say. It, it, that's a special one though. That episode was a very special one, uh, different than most. So there's tons to say about it. Yeah. So anyway, um following episode uh kind of a more return to normal kind of thing in terms of the visual stuff going on in this episode. So it was a little, little breezier in terms it's of like the spell has been broken. Yeah. Reality is back. And I think that's, what's really the theme of how this opens with uh, Nina uh, kind of shifting from her being uh, kind of righteous about what happened. Like, yeah, that guy was going to betray us and he fell to it suddenly hitting her personally, you know, her feel the rejection is hitting her now. She calls him a liar. 
for having run away and rejected this. Yeah, she falls down and cries, you know. I mean, it's a complete a complete change from how she was acting just a second ago. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Luca reveals herself to Nina. Uh, and the look on Luca's face, I love it. Um, and, you know, Nina comments on it as well. It is kind of this, it's, it's a look of pity. It's a look of, actually, I have trouble putting in the words. Well, I um, think it's uh, half disappointment, half pity, half understanding you know, uh, more about her. It's a, uh, it's, it's a mix. Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah, mix. Concern. Yeah, I, I think there's also, you know, I don't, I don't want to say disappointment. Maybe di- disapproval. You know, there's a, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's the look of, it's the look of a parent seeing their kid having done something really horrible. Yeah, and that's kind of what happens here. Is uh, she sees Luca or Nina approaching? She's Nina sees Luca approaching and uh, tells her to stay back. Three even throws a rock at her face, which you know we see draws blood from her forehead. And Luca keeps heading towards her. Yeah, and, and Nina uh, is, Nina threatens to jump off. But. What I like is that Nina throws a rock, and she's shocked to see that it actually hit Luca and you know drew blood. So it's just you know like she, she I guess she really doesn't know what she's doing. She she's crazy, you know. She, she was acting out. I don't, I don't I don't think she actually intended to hurt her. She just wants to keep her yeah. away. That kind of thing. She knows that would escalate the situation, but what she what she doesn't know, I don't think, until in a few pages from now, is Luca's not trying to harm her. She's trying to uh, just discipline her, get her back well, to. Well, you know, I I don't think she's uh, afraid Luca will harm her. I think she's afraid of. She doesn't want her pity. You know, like it's a, a recurring mm-hmm. arc for Nina's character. She doesn't want. She's afraid of even her just a gaze. You know. Like, she, well, there's a shame, the guilt, you know, she doesn't want to be judged by, because she knows Lucas better than her, and she doesn't want to be, I, I think there's that, that side of it, you know, uh, in mm, there, you know, yeah. she, she doesn't want to be judged, she doesn't want to face the thing, and that's actually, you know, what she tells her on the page, you know, she's, when she even threatens to jump, it's really, like, she doesn't want to face Luca, very simply. Right. And she has nowhere to run, and she, she has doesn't to want run. to reconcile this double life, basically, I think. Ah. That's good. Yeah, and so Nina accuses her. You know, she can't. She's saying that Nina, Luca can't be righteous because she's also a whore. And so, how can you look down on her? Yeah, and, uh, because that's the thing. The look on Luca's face. She accuses her to have always been uh, high indeed and that kind of stuff, which is probably not true. But at least that's how she accuses her. Well, that's her. I think that's her perception of it. I, th- I, th- I think there's there's a lot of unspoken things happening here, and actually, I have a I do have a hard time understanding Nina's character, and, and maybe it's just because I'm I'm looking for something that's not there. Well, you know, uh, I think in the same way that you appreciate, you know, Carcass for what he was, which is a simple man, a, a cowardly man who you know tried to to you know get the best he could and everything. Nina's just she represents her and Joachim are really just Jose. Uh, the lowest of the low, you know, like the average coward, you know, that's Nina, the average mm-hmm. coward. She, she's, you know, like, and what she tells Luca that she's the same as her, just a whore. So why she looks down on her and everything, I guess it shows something, you know, it's a way for Mira to say that it doesn't matter, you know, uh, whether they're whores or not, that Luca can still be, you know, a grand character. Someone who deserves mm-hmm. something while Nina is just a coward and everything. You know, you know what I mean? It's like what she mm-hmm. says they are the same. It actually, at the same time, she's admitting that they are not and that despite being a whore, Luca is, you know, someone, you know, who has greatness to her while Nina doesn't. And that's what Nina resents that she's someone who's 
unworthy while Luca is, you know, and that's like her whole character arc down to the end when she finally reconciles, you know, and decides to go by herself because she doesn't want to lean on her because she'll hate her. All of that is already present in this shot, you know, like that's already uh, setting it up. Yeah. I do think this is a very strange reprimand to happen immediately after the orgy, the, the spanking. It just seems, strikes me as a little strange. <laughs> no, actually, uh, but I, I understand the intent behind it. Actually, um, I think it makes sense, actually. I mean, you know, she's really a parent disciplining a child, you know. I, I think, I think, mm-hmm. honestly, I find it great. I think it makes sense. She slaps her and then, you know, spanks her. I think it's just like a spoil, like you would do with a spoiled brat. And, uh, and Nina mm-hmm. breaks down crying, and you know I think that's just great. It really shows the immaturity of the character. Again, again, it's you know Nina is a character. She's really the the average coward, you know, and, uh, and everything you know feeds into that. Yeah. And as it ends, uh, Lucas says that you know she worries her, uh, and it makes sense because you know she has been looking out for Nina especially. I think she knows. That Nina's been up to no good, and you know all this. This night was confirmation of that. But and it's not that Nina's gonna or Luca's gonna kick her out or anything. It's more a matter of, you know, we're all in this together, and you know, it's, it's only making things harder when she takes on these things mm-hmm. for herself. Yep. Anyway, so they head back to camp, but then they notice that Casca uh, has also followed them like uh, out here, and now she's surrounded by these heretics who are interested in what the hell she's doing out here. Um, one of them tries to, uh, they, they want to leave her alone because one of them recognizes her from Luca's place saying they should leave her alone because she has syphilis. But one guy, that's not enough to deter one guy. So he, uh, <laughs> one of the grossest ones. takes off. <laughs> right. I love the, the face he has whenever he sees her face. And he has this, he has a classic line. Uh, there's a face that could use some of me in it. At least that's how Dark Horse puts it. It's very, chicks love hearing that. Just saying. Anyway. He um, strips her down and the brand begins activating and something happens with Casca that uh, I think has been you know, long in the long in the making in terms of how it's, how it's portrayed. And we kind of see for a moment inside Casca's mind, uh, her eye reflecting the image of the eclipse as the apostles had surrounded her. Uh, and then we see an overhead shot of them over her body. And, you know, it's triggered by her feeling of helplessness. Which is, you know, mirrored by what's happening here. Yeah, it's me, it's me, it mirrors, uh, the attackers, you know, uh, bent over her. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, it comes down to, you know, her being assaulted is what it does. But I, I do think it's the feeling of helplessness as well. Yeah. That she's being attacked like this brings it out. And she starts screaming, which, um, draws out the specters. I, I like that, uh, you know, as he rips off her clothes, you see the blood from the brand. And so, you know, like mm-hmm. it means, you know, while she's having these, uh, say recollections or hallucination mixed with recollections of the eclipse, you know, the specters are already, you know, gathering. And so, yeah, when she screams, you know, they gather, but I think they were already in the process of forming uh, a few pages before that, because we see that uh, blood. Yeah, I think it's, you're right. I do think it's incidental. Otherwise, I don't have any way of explaining why they had happened then. I think it's just a coincidence rather. Yeah. That it happens at that time that she screams. But what's interesting is, you know, after all is said and done, it does appear that she has some kind of control over these, you know, supernatural things, at least from Luca's perspective, as she's observing what happens here. Yeah, and yeah. from the guys as well, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. 
So yeah, the uh, specters possess a lot of the heretics, and I, I love the the first reaction when one of his friends asks, "What's wrong?" and he literally just bites his face off. Oh yeah, Lu- Lucas' reaction. It's a, it's a great panel. You know that uh, it almost looks like uh, a traditional Japanese uh, demon. You know, like that <laughs> yeah. big round white eyes, a giant face, and it's like a mask. It's a you know, pretty crazy actually. Yeah, just jumps off his whole face. And yeah, a lot of the others are transformed as well. These panels are great, you know. I like the specters swooping in and out of the bodies. I like uh, how they become the, like animals. Yeah, yeah, beast-like. Uh, and then, then uh, Luke is looking at Casca, uh, wondering if she if she's the source of all this, as this haze appears to surround her. And uh, then they're heading towards Casca, but uh, she's protected by the the boy who arrives in this beautiful swirling effect yep. around Casca. Lovely. Yeah, and that panel at the very bottom is very cool as well, getting a close-up close up look of the boy's eye. And he has this mysterious look on his face that repels uh, the specters from the bodies. You know, similar to what we've seen him do before uh, a couple different times. And even re- fairly recently, we've seen him do yep. acts like that before. Anyway, um, and Casca reaches out for the boy, but at that point, you know, he vanishes as well. Uh, and then... Everyone's left of the aftermath of this horrifying thing that had happened. Casca's still having her arms out looking for her boy. And it just the, makes the her look even more like a witch, you know, Cas- yeah. she looks like she's casting some sort of spell. So yeah, it looks like Casca has not only transformed these people, but also summoned this, you know, demonic looking form in the sky, you know, all at once. So they bow down to her, calling her a witch. It's, it's actually a pretty funny, you know, uh, chain of events. Well, like that, these yeah. guys, you know, uh, misconception about her, about what just, you know, transpired before them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of capitalizing on, this was happened earlier in this volume as well, when she was out collecting water with Nina at the base of the tower. We saw that, you know, ghouls and specters were rising, trying to get to her. And the boy repelled them as well at the same, back then. But now it came, danger became a little closer for her this yeah, time. Yeah, it also explains, uh, how she survived all this time, like when she was out, you know, sure. before. Because at, you know, we weren't sure, you know, uh, at, at first, but yeah, the, her son has been protecting her all along. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't actually thought of that, but that makes perfect sense. Um, what I also like about this final panel of this episode is the sky, uh, the hatching and the, the lines of the sky. Uh, we've mentioned it before, but it does look like a, 19th century or 18th century illustration. Uh, just the amount of detail that's put into those lines. Very gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's not the final. Well, the final page is, uh, we get to see the fate of uh, Joachim. He, uh, at the very base of the cliff, uh, he was pulled from the water by the Behirid Apostle, who then leaps away as Joachim kind of gurgles back to life. So he spared Joachim. Yeah. He saved his life, yeah. Yeah. Which is again interesting because, like, I mean, we get to see later on that this character has the power to transform people, do various stuff, but yeah, for Joachim, he just saves his yeah, life for no reason. Yeah, he didn't transform him either. Yeah, he just. Sorry, Griff, what? Well, no, like, uh, like, as is pointing out, you know, he doesn't, he could have transformed him, but he doesn't, you know, he, he sort of, he doesn't just save his life, but he also spares him from, you know, becoming a monster, which is pretty much what he'll do to, you know, to most of the other characters he interacts with. And mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't really think of it before, but I mean, there's sort of, I think, a judgment there as well, where, you know, Joachim was sort of this, you know, pure character, 
in that orgy, you know, who, even though he got caught up in it, he also kind of broke from it. And I think, you know, this is sort of an observance of that. And the same thing with uh, Luca later. He's a closest to a victim. And, uh, yeah, I think that plays a, a part in why he decides to save him. Yeah. He's, a, you know, again, he's outcast by these guys and everything. So, yeah. So we're changing gears. Next episode uh, is The Road of Evil. <laughs> and it starts with uh, it's basically changing to Guts, Puck, and Isidro on the road towards the Holy Land. Isidro is just caught up with Guts, who is sleeping. He had a hard time. He couldn't keep up with him during Guts' travels because Guts is much faster, even though he's so much heavier. And Isidro immediately starts comically sneaking up on him and starts trying to steal the Dragon Slayer with Puck observing all the while. And Isidro is, you know, fascinated and assumes this is a famous sword. I don't know why he thinks he can take it, but he cannot budge it one inch. And that's when he. I, I do wonder if his it. if his plan was to pick it up and run off. You know, it seems. Yeah, seems, you know, what was the end game here? I think it, I think it's just a comical thing that happens. You know, yeah, I can't imagine he expected to get away with it, but it is funny that he tries to do that. You know. Yeah, it's like it seems like he's trying to steal it, but was he? Did he just want to see if he could move it? Did he? You know, he's probably just impressed by it. You know, kid wants to see this cool yeah. sword, wants to swing it around. Yeah, I think he probably expected to steal it, but you know, <laughs> what folly! Obviously, that. Obviously, was not a well thought out plan, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, he, you know, he does point out, you know, he says how gut, he noticed guts was swinging it around so easily, so he assumed it was movable, <laughs> and yeah. you know, he just just wasn't giving guts credit at this point. And so that is when Puck starts to intervene and starts giving him advice on how to steal it, <laughs> telling him to put his back into it, use his hips, <laughs> and you know, basically, even starts giving him sword instructions like to swing it and give a nice big shout. And he introduces himself as you know his new master and the master of uh, seventh degree elf mm -hmm. dimension style. And also, they <laughs> yeah. they have a funny little moment where he says, you know, when you request a prison's name, it's good to give yours. And Sidro gives him his name, but also notes, you know, I didn't ask your name. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Puck uh, gives him one last, you know encouragement has him lifted up and he's able to lift it but then it just falls right on him and traps him and that's when puck <laughs> jumps on top of the sword and tells uh, guts i caught a thief or in this case i caught a sneak kid row it's actually the it, it's puck's weight that makes him yeah go down. puck jumps on it yeah it's yeah. Azidro <laughs> notes that he's not trying to stop me but all puck was trying to do was to do this to him you know he let <laughs> yeah, him right into a, the trap it's all an elaborate trick on puck's part yeah no, that was pretty funny. And so we we have this, and yeah, Puck is very proudly standing on top of it, <laughs> having caught him. And yeah, it's actually kind of a, a little scary shot of Guts looking down on him. I mean, he's just looking very stoic, you know. And Sidra assumes he's going to be killed by this frightening man. And Guts just picks up the sword and uh, tells him it's not a toy, which immediately uh, changes the dynamic of their relationship as Sidra is annoyed. And uh, Guts reveals that he knows he's been following him the entire time. To which Isidro, you know, Isidro just tries to laugh all this off. And I, Puck, I, th I think oh, Puck, go ahead. I think Guts' reaction throughout this whole scene is is really interesting. And you know, it, it starts merely as passive, but um, yeah, you have to wonder. Well, <clears throat> I think Guts basically sees that he's not going to be able to shake this kid very easily, and he kind of that's kind of his attitude throughout this. Like he knows him being around Guts is a threat. Right, you know, he he knows uh, Sidro's um, 
you know, life is in danger if he hangs around Guts. And clearly this kid is yeah. enamored with Guts. And so I, I think that's kind of Guts' attitude throughout the scene as well. He's trying to shake this kid, but knows he can't do it directly. But yeah, I mean, I like what you I said about us. Uh, oh, go ahead, Ash. No, I was just going to say, I think he's also interested, you know, like intrigued by uh, who this kid might be, who's actually managed to, you know, uh, you know, trace him for like over a day. You know? Yeah. I think that shows in, in the way he, you know, he smiles, you know, there's, a, there's that yeah. page where he just, you know, he smiles to himself. So, and, you know, then asks him if he's ever cut anyone. Well, so I think he, well, like he knows what kind of character he's up against. Well, you know? something I noticed here that, you know, you mentioned how he starts talking to him passively. Guts basically just starts treating him like he treats anyone else. You know, he just tells him, it, he, he shines him on, tells him it's not a toy, you know. But he he takes a liking to Isidro, I think, faster than we've seen him take a liking to anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he really yeah. resonates with him quickly, considering Guts, you know, doesn't want to resonate with anybody usually. So it's actually pretty interesting. Well, and it all starts with Isidro. You mm-hmm. know, Puck basically says, you know, oh, you want to be his apprentice, you know? And Isidro just gives this completely bratty, ugly, like sort of teenage look like, oh, you know, no way. And that is when uh, – that's when Guts, you know, sort of takes notice of him, well, <laughs> you know, because uh, he says, I'm not going to work under anybody. Right. I, I think he appreciates the fact that Isidro has got gusto, you know, pretty much. Yeah. Well, m- more yeah, directly. He's got a lot of nerve, and it reminds him of uh, himself too, probably, the way he was. Yeah. That's what I was going to say was – I think there's that two-panel pause at the top of the page before he asks if he's cutting anybody down before. Where Guts kind of – it kind of – you can see him reacting to the the line about not wanting to work under anybody. And I think he's seeing yeah. some of himself. He, he recognizes that, you know, kind of attitude from himself, his own experience. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. also what you said, how he's going to have trouble, you know, shaking this kid. You know, he's got a lot of attitude. He's got a lot of gumption and he's, he's resourceful too. He was able to actually, you know, follow him and then, you know, not really sneak up on him and, you know, do anything of note, but uh, still it's one thing that made relatively impressive. One thing that made me laugh during this reread was Puck, you know, saying, you came back for the food, huh? Well, it's too bad. I already ate it all. I could <laughs> and we saw that page and earlier in the volume. He had, like, tons and tons of food and, like, booze even. It's basically the same. It's a little replay of the moment where he says, I didn't ask your name. Where he's like, he ate all of it. He ate all that food. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, so Gut starts uh, going on his way, you know, after questioning him about if he's ever cut well, anyone. There's one thing that's also pretty funny. I mean, it's when Gut asks Isidro if he's ever killed anyone. And, yeah. you know, like, it's very obvious Isidro's lying. You know, he's yeah. saying, yeah, sure, I, one or two. But, you know, like, it's very clear he, he hasn't. Yeah. Yeah, he he's, His face is pretty much almost his age is whatever sort of uh, what he's talking about. He looks like a lying child, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just like, yeah, sure, yeah. one or two. Well, I think it's interesting and, that Gut's uh, even cuts to the quick like that. It's like... You know, he hears that Isidro wants to be a warrior or a fighter. So Guts is cutting to the quick, like, well, how serious are you taking this? You know, how far yeah. along are you, basically? Well, and it's, yeah. it, like I said, it's it's a, it's interesting. It's of note that he's engaged with him, you know, mm-hmm. just on the second page, you know, like that at all, that he's, he's asking him questions. Usually he's just telling people, you know, get lost. <laughs> and then the next thing they say, he just repeats, get lost. So this is interesting. But anyway, Guts, you know, he cuts to the chase in a different way and basically says you know it doesn't make a difference you know because if he hangs around him he's going to be in danger to which Sidro immediately responds that he can do whatever he wants 
which Guts is agreeable to. But then Puck starts taking the situation seriously because he can tell something's coming as well as Guts can. Yeah, and whenever when, Guts delivers that line saying it's true that, you know, I've got no reason to complain, he already knows that they're approaching because his brand's bleeding. Yeah, his brand's bleeding. He's, yeah. But I also like that he he, he agrees with uh, Isidro's uh, sort of his ethos. There. Yeah. It's like, well, that is true. <laughs> but I think it's more like I'll have no cause to complain, but you'll have cause to cl- complain uh, by hanging around me pretty soon, you know. Right. Kind of yeah. <laughs> You're not going to want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> true. So then we get this we get to see this shot of Isidro. He's realizing something's coming, and you can see it, and it's it's just t- kind of bizarre. You don't yeah. know what to make of it at first sight, even for Berserk, even for veterans of the series. Like, what is this that's approaching? It's a little confusing, mm-hmm. and uh, it's wagon wheels moving on their own. Guts, you know, gives a real evil grin, and you know, seems to appreciate you know the novelty of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, these are really weird. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. it's the aftermath of what Mazgus is, you know, people yes. are doing. Or maybe not specifically Mazgus, but that particular type of torture, the breaking wheel being People used. being broken on yeah. the wheel. Yeah. And now they've become mobile, moving, mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of, you know, almost... It's a very weird thing, because this is almost like, you know... They move almost like, you know, it's like a motorcycle gang coming in <laughs> to attack them. I mean, the closest equivalent... And another interesting thing I find about them is uh, is sort of how much they're cursing guts. You know, they seem they're very angry. They're very full of hate, even more than you know the usual. I think ghouls and uh, ghosts that come after him. I mean, I may be wrong about that. Do you guys uh, disagree that these ones seem especially sort of foul mouthed? Uh, I think it might be the nature in which they died. Yeah, you know? I mean, I, yeah, that's what I was thinking well, too. I s- I, I think uh, Darko's translation may be a bit liberal. Oh, this ridiculous, man. Why. It's rid- Like, they translate Shiksho with, like, you son of a bitch. God damn it. Like, it's, like, all over the well, place. They do, a, they do a Hell's Angels yeah. joke, too. I don't yeah. know how well, well that translates. P- Puck saying that, yeah. Yeah. And anyway, yeah, but, you know, I, I do agree uh, that aside that, uh, you know, the, the way they died uh, fuels their anger. You know, it's always like that. And so, yeah, they're, they're no doubt resentful about mm-hmm. what uh, Mosgus or his ilk did to them. Yeah, there is also, I think, uh, there's a little bit to it in the in Gut's mind, too, because he's just noting how hate-filled they seem to be, and he relates to it, mm-hmm. you know, basically saying, it's the same way for me, too. And then he, bas- he recalls that he's got a mission, and that he doesn't have time to waste with these guys. I do like there's a little bit of an insight. He explains to Isidro what the hell these things, why they're so pissed off, kind of. He says they don't really have any reason to hate you or me. They just got they died and got stupid and they can't tell who they're cursing, which is a very you know uh, what's the word uh, mm-hmm. loose way of explaining the situation. But I, I like it. You know, it makes. Some I also sense. appreciate it as you know it's kind of dismissive as well. Yeah, like yeah. guts isn't sweating these guys too much. He's not too worried about what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so and they are not worth you know dwelling upon. Yeah, yeah, true. And so. Guts basically starts literally running through them and just destroying them, and Isidro's only hope of surviving is, he's already been saved by Gus once here, is to just pretty much run behind him and follow in his wake. And, uh, but that's that's not going to work for long, because uh, Isidro can't outrun them, and Guts pretty much tells him, you know, get to some ground uh, that they can't follow you on, you know, get the, get the advantage. And Isidro, again, is trying to, you know, be defiant. And, uh, 
and yeah, he pulls his sword, he tries to fight back like Guts, and just immediately breaks his sword in half. <laughs> and uh, and Guts comes back to rescue him, to his credit, because Guts was, you know, probably long and far away. So, I mean, this wasn't just an incidental thing where, you know, Guts happened to kill the guy that was going to kill somebody else. I mean, he had to come back and save Isidro's ass. And he picks him up and immediately yeah. tosses him to safety. Yeah, like the, and, the toss uh, and, the and then twirl. continues on his way. Yeah, I, li- I like that he does check on him. You know, like he tosses him off the side of the cliff, yeah. but he looks to see if he's all right. Yeah, and he then looks he, how he goes, and then he has a very Batman-like uh, moment where he just, you know, you see his cape flap and he's he's gone as he's going in the other direction with the wheels following him. So I was looking back a few pages. Did you notice how um, after the sword breaks and uh, they're, they're about to get to him, <laughs> you know, well, Puck pulls, puts Sidro in front of him and says, it's Nikidro's oh, yeah, shield. Nikidro's shield. Yeah, yeah. Standing behind him as a body, basically. Yeah, well, he's a master of the elf dimension style, uh-huh. so, you know, <laughs> makes, makes Very sense. Adaptable. It's one of his many tricks. <laughs> yeah, one of his many tricks. Uh, I also like how, you know, uh, just when Isidro is, you know, like in doubt of whether it's real, Puck pummels him with his, you know, bloody needle and makes him bleed. You know, it's a pretty, pretty funny moment, you know, when the wheel. Oh, uh, when, yeah, when he's saying if it was real or not. Oh, right, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. While we're going back to those pages, there's one right when, when Guts kind of engages these things. He, he grips his sword tightly and says he doesn't have time for them. He's in a hurry, has that very dramatic panel. You know, right then there's a small panel of Puck kind of noticing that guts is really kind of getting into this and I, you know we see this happen from time to time you know i think puck's sensing you know what's happening in the turmoil inside guts and he's kind of reflecting uh you know as he's talking about these the, the hatred within these guys he's noticing that guts is getting a little more serious than normal about this kind of fight i think yeah i wonder if he's worried about uh what's going to happen next that kind of thing but it does it's never elaborated on it's really just puck noticing guts temperament and that's it. Yeah. Also, like, you know, before that panel, we see Guts reflecting, you know, on mm-hmm. hate, on what these guys feel, you know, and, uh, you know, what he feels himself inside. And I think that's, uh, you know, possibly a reference to the, the Beast oh, of Darkness. Of so, you know, yeah. it's, it's also, you know, like, there's, there's stuff going on here, you know, it's not just, even when it's just Guts, you know, break, you know, breaking apart his wheels, you know, there's a, a lot of little stuff, you know, being, you know, sprinkled through it, which is worse, you know, nothing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, we, you know, uh, as we, we cut away from, uh, Isidro lying face down, you know, uh, we see uh, the aftermath of the battle with the wheels. So, you know, we, we get to see that Guts has reduced them to bits and pieces and he's continuing on his way, running at full speed. So I, I kind of like how this opens with, you know, like, you know, the, you know, wheels destroyed from afar, then, you know, the face is up close, then his feet, and then that shot from him from, uh, overhead. Uh, and, you know, as he's running, you know, Puck is trying to get him to slow down because he's afraid he might get exhausted that the pace is going out, but Gus won't have it. He does stop, however, in front of a fam- familiar figure wrapped up in an otherworldly fog. So an old friend, as he tells Puck, who had, you know, mistaken him from a monster at first glance. So, yeah, it's a skull knight. <clears throat> so we get to see a full shot of him in full glory, which is always pretty, you know, pretty nice from my perspective. Uh, so, yeah, you know, uh, 
Skullknight gives out some presentries and Puck does as well, you know, joking about the fact that he's lonely <laughs> and whatever. I love this interaction. The fact that Puck is, Puck thinks he's meeting one of Guts's only friends. And so that's how he's treating it. Yeah. Like, oh, well, we better be nice to him. It's one of the, sorry, Guts is so lonely, you know, that kind of stuff. It's really funny. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, it just, you know, it breaks the tension of the scene. When the Skullknight appears very, you know, it's like, I came to warn yeah. you. And he's just, oh, you know, he's friends. It's a totally different, so, it's a totally different atmosphere with Puck there, and it's really cool. I like it. Yeah. So, you know, meanwhile, you know, what, what's funny is that uh, the Skullknight, uh, Jose, notices that Puck is there, and he finds him interesting. Mm-hmm. That uh, Gus would travel with an Elfin companion. So it, to him, it's uh, it reinforces his impression, you know, the impression he had about Gus, like the fact Gus, Gus is special. And at the same time, Puck does notice something odd about the Skull Knight, the mysterious knight himself. Yes, which we actually learn about at the very end of the volume or the, the episode. Mira yep. actually explains that to us. So it's not just a nothing uh, reference, of course. Yep, indeed. So, you know, as Guts wonders why uh, Skull Knight is in such a place, he reminds him of his sole purpose to oppose the Arbingel of evil. So uh, Guts thinks of an apostle, but the Skull Knight corrects him. It's, you know, a bigger target. And not only that, but they're both sitting in the same place. So, you know, Guts is flabbergasted, I guess, at the idea that Golden might be at the toe of conviction. And then we get... And that's a recurring thing in this episode. A lot of extremely uh, uh, important knowledge. So Skullknight drops that on him. Because of nature, uh, the Godena are everywhere in this world. You know, especially anywhere there's a large amount of uh, negative thoughts and feeling and evil and such. But still because of their nature as uh, these huge astral beings, they cannot materialize in the world as physical beings. However, if enough evil is concentrated in one place, uh, one such uh, astral entity might be incarnated, meaning they might receive a body of flesh. And that's an exceptionally rare event, something that would be a once in a millennium event. So this is, real, so, real quick, though, there's tons and tons of things to... to this this yeah. whole episode is just... I said it before we started recording, but it's one of my most referenced episodes throughout the whole series because... Not, not not only from my own knowledge, but because questions about this particular part of the series are all answered in this episode. Like, there's so many things. Uh, first, he explains the millennial incarnation ceremony. He explains the nature of the God Hand and, and why they why they don't they have no body but can have a body through this scenario. Uh, he even explains that the nature of uh, the interstice in terms of guts being able to disrupt things. Uh, all it this pretty stuff pretty much explains like everything. Yeah, so like it, I mean, it pretty yeah. much sets up the you know our knowledge of this world going forward. Which is why it's today. It makes this a really diff- for me for me narratively. It makes it a difficult episode to kind of summarize because it's it's a knowledge bomb, you know. And I feel like we'd have to basically be yeah. explaining all these concepts to, to you know people, but these are kind of understood parts. So like, I don't know. I feel weird about going over this stuff. Is is basically like this is like. Astral World 101, like, you should know this shit. <laughs> I don't feel like explaining it during the podcast, but, um. Yeah, but, you know, it's worth mentioning that this is the kind of stuff that I think is, uh, it's, it's worth explaining to people. Sure. I mean, but yeah, I mean, in the context of just this reread, we can't go over every little detail, you know, uh, because, you know, that's like a podcast episode yeah. in itself, you know, I mean, and we've already done that kind of stuff. Before we go too much further, I wanted to say that, it was interesting for me 
being a reader as this, this, this particular part of the series was still coming out. This volume was out, but no one had translations for it. Uh, this is way back in 99. And, uh, Skull Knight says very, very directly that the God Hand have no body, but there is a ceremony that will bring one of them into the, into flesh. And that's going to be the, the Falcon. It'll be Griffith slash Femto. Of course, yeah. you know, anyone reading this episode would know that, but the entire community did not know that because of the lack of translation. One person who could read it knew that and told it to us, and we all thought it was crazy. We all thought he was crazy for having said such obvious shit. But I think it just kind of goes to show, um, having an understanding of the series is very important, obviously, knowing what's being said is important, but also the fact that so much of what happens in the next three or four volumes all comes from the knowledge we learn just in this. You know, this is such a critical point to understand where the series is going. That Griffith is coming back. Yep. Yep. It. Uh, I. I think it represents, in a way, almost a paradigm shift. Yeah. You know, like yep. from what one might expect before, which is eventually Gut is gonna, you know, come face to face, like in Volume Three again. You well, know, face with these guys. Now we know he Whereas is gonna come face to face with him again, mm-hmm. you know, like that. But we also come face to face with him, you know, looking like he did. In the yeah. Past. So the thing is. Yeah, it's not him getting to them; it's them coming, coming to down him. to him. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty you know it, it's a, it's a big deal. You know, as this indeed, like you said, I mean, it's a knowledge bomb. There's so much stuff. So you know, then you know, to get back to page by page stuff, SK drops the you know the bomb literally. They're like Asgard's not seen the dream, the one with the falcon. And he explains that it's probable everyone in the world did that it means one thing. It heralds the coming of the Falcon into the world. So I actually love that shot of uh, yeah, Femto. You know, we see Fem- Femto's back with a uh, black sun in the background. It's a, it's a really great shot. And, uh, you know, everything, even, you know, when he talks about the dream and we see the, again, what God saw with the flaming, you know, Falcon coming from the, the pole. Everything's pretty great. Uh, even the shot, you know, the shots, various shots of the Skull Knight looking ominous as he speaks. Everything is uh, is very nice. There's so many great just individual panels here. And it's just small yeah. details. Like, it's one of those things. It's one of these episodes I reference when I have to think about Miura depicting Skull Knight, someone whose face doesn't animate, yet able to convey thoughts and imagery and, you know, ideas just through a stark face because of how he does the lighting, yeah. how he does the perspective. It's all over the place here, you know. There's just particularly the the panel where Skull Knight's asking if she's at the holy ground. Mm-hmm. That's the one I'm looking at. I really at. Yeah. love that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very. So yeah, we we get to see uh, Guts, how to say, you know, dealing. You know, he's taken aback, but by what he's been told, and we see a I think a really great page sliced in three panels as it uh, sinks in, where we see the lower part of his face, and uh, you know, then. Uh, Femto, you know, silhouette, and then his yeah. eyes. While, you know, Puck is wondering, you know, what's going on with, with Guts. And so, yeah, there's this, you know, like the, the Skull Knight, you know, he doesn't stop. That's the thing. It's like this, this knowledge that is, you know, imparted never stops coming. So, you know, the Skull Knight, you know, asks him where Casca mm-hmm. is. And Gus doesn't even have time to, end, to reply before uh, Skull Knight concludes that his hunch was right. So we see Guts and Puck, which are frustrated at, you know, the enigmatic, uh, you know, exchange p- taking place. It's not even the first time, but, you know, 
Like I think even from a from the reader's perspective, you know, it's uh it's not immediately clear. Although we get to have you know the benefit of having read everything and knowing what's going to happen. So uh, the Skull Knight keeps going and explain to him that uh, the Golden, you know, how to say, this ceremony will mirror the eclipse, and that the eclipse will happen yeah, again. Yeah, you know. I'm trying to think, like, you know, he says, the golden will manifest themselves. Mm-hmm. The people desiring the coming of the falcon of light will gather, you know, at the tower. Guts and Casca are being there. And, you know, like, it's like all these little, you know, bricks, you know, and when all combined, you know, like, there's only one conclusion. That's all. He's kind of spelling it out to, to Guts. And there's that shot, which is, you know, uh, I'm sure a bit, you know, controversial of his, you know, uh, mouth <laughs> being open, the skull's mouth being open, where he says the eclipse and, you know, he drops to them that, you know, th- you know, these events are mirroring the eclipse, you know, it, it will happen again. So we, we get, you know, and I love also that shot of, you know, the faces, yeah. the some kind of walls of faces, you know, with the black dot in the center is pretty great. And, uh, we, we get a shot, a reaction shot of Guts, which I also think is, uh, just, you know, magnificent, where his face is unreadable and you, you get the wind, you know, blowing his cloak from his back. Yeah, even know. before that face, I just love the fact that Skullman had just mentioned the eclipse like this, and we know what that summons within Guts. And the, the first panel we get of Guts is this very, just a non-reaction, and then the dramatic wind kicks in. It's just a very cool moment, you know, silence, basically. Yeah. Is the reaction. Yeah, it's very, atmospheric mm-hmm. you know like i mean you can feel the tension the weight of the scene uh you know there's you know puck looking up at guts again you know feeling his emotions feeling you know like the, the fear the anger the anxiety everything and there's you know there's something yeah. else you know and as we see guts jose you know he's you know clutching his uh you know his right eye you know uh the blind one and he's you know experiencing again that scene where he's in a blood lake with his, you know, comrades, you know, all killed. I love the way it's mm-hmm. done with the, the lake, you know, flowing to his face. It's gorgeous. And, uh, yeah. And Puck realizes that, you know, Gus feels some kind of ecstasy at that thought. So I don't know if you guys have any, you know, thing to add. Well, to it's that. a difficult, it's actually a difficult thing to parse, but I, I really think it comes down simply to that mania he feels whenever he's remembering this hard part of his life. Even that itself is a kind of pleasure because he can yeah, give himself a, over to it. It's a bloodlust. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's also going to be, I think he also recognizes it as an opportunity, you know, for revenge to, you know, he'll be able to fight this time. I mean, it's, it's, it's his, yep. it's his fuel. A lot of his, his anger and his pain and his hatred at that moment is, is his power. I mean, you know, yeah. In, in and a it's a, way. it's basically a confirmation that, you know, he's going to get a chance to do that, you know, to hmm. get a do over on that. He's going to get another shot at it. You know, he's been, lo- he's been looking for this fight. We're saying and two different things and I'm agreeing with it. both of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So hey, I want to hear his take because me, me and Griff wait on and this thing that I don't know has an easy answer. I would love to hear your take on that on that panel. Well, I agree with uh, I agree with what you said, uh, both of you, and uh, I also think very obviously that it's you know uh, what fuels the beast of yes. darkness. You know that that feeling, the feeling of you know like that 
you know, uh, Freud would say the pulsion of death, mm. you know, that, you know, desire to go at it, to just, you know, abandon oneself to that misery and, you know, horror and the desire, that mania, like you said. I think mania is really a, a good way to summarize mm -hmm. it, you know. It's not so much actual pleasure of delight or anything, but yeah, a kind of manic, uh, you know, expectation, that kind of thing, a, a pulsion. Yep. Unfortunately, Skull Knight so, throws cold water on it pretty fast. <laughs> on his, you know. yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 the thing with this episode is that he just keeps on, you know, keeps on giving, you know. Yeah. So you know, the Skull Knight tells him, and in that great panel, you know, uh, highlighting his eyes, that there's no way uh, for you know humans to change the course of of these events, and and Guts is uh, again taken aback by that, and he explains that he he makes an analogy that has confused many people <laughs> over the years. <laughs> Guts is a Saying fish that, swimming on the uh, moon, right? <laughs> I got it. No, say, saying that is like uh, you know the moonlight reflecting on uh, on the water, and that no, 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 that's not right. There's a fish in, inside the moon with a flashlight, <laughs> oh, no. and it's going to do a <laughs> dive not... into the water, <laughs> creating ripples. Uh, don't do this to me. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's a uh, you know. It's like the the moonlight reflected on the water, and uh, basically you can't change the image of the moon because, like you know, it's inviolate. Basically, it's the moon. Yeah. So you know, just by Hotse, you you can't change the course of heaven because of that, and uh, you know, because also this is something that has already mm -hmm. happened. So you know, it's uh, like. These events are merely a shadow of the the previous eclipse, you know, and it's not something that can be <clears throat> how to say that can be changed. At I point. love this so, symbolic idea, not only just the way it's described, but also the ideas he used to to, to convey it. For, for, for yeah. mostly the fact that the moon is the thing, because the moon is like a, it's like a cosmic event, right? There's of course there's no way you can oppose that, you know. He's basically putting causality yeah. on the on the scope of the power level where it's like a not only is it a, is it a part of nature, it's something so much huger than any one human's individual action that of course you can't disrupt that, you know? That's, I it, think it's also beautiful. Also in a, a literal sense, just for the metaphor, it's something, you know, it's an easy description of something that's out of reach. Totally. It's just, yeah. yeah. Way beyond any it's, one person's it, wit. Yeah, it, exactly. Uh, what I like most is it's that idea that someone might think, uh, you know, by striking the water, they can, you yeah. know, remove that thing. But actually, no, because, you know, like, you can't impact that, you know, celestial exactly. body that's, you know, far It's there. gorgeous. It's such a beautiful idea. And it also makes, you know, like, there's also the fact that uh, during this uh, mirror event, there's also, you know, the moon plays the role of the sun. Yes. You know, of the occult sun. So that whole thing, you know, is also related like that. So, anyway... Uh, Guts is, uh, I would say pissed off at the idea that, you know, he can't change the way things will go. It will be the same as last time. And the Skull Knight is pretty, I guess, you know, he just tells him, well, the fact we meet here and now is proof, you know, more than anything else that, uh, <clears throat> you know, the things will repeat themselves, you know, because they had met before the eclipse. So it's again part of the whole right, thing. Right. It's paralleling their first meeting in volume nine. There's sort of certain elements that are very similar about that. I actually wonder if it was a chance encounter before as well. Just the way he phrases that seems interesting to me. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I, yeah. Anyway, he explains to Gus further that they, you know, uh, 
exist within the current of causality. Well, hold on, no. Guts isn't in causality. He, he's, he's, because he was branded, he's not in causality anymore. That's what I, that's what I understood. He can, he can change the, the matrix. He's the one. No, he is the one, exactly. Yeah. No, actually, I, Guts hasn't been. jump inside I, Void and <laughs> blow him up. Are you, are you guys just, like, are you conspiring against me or something? <laughs> Dude, we are being particularly bad in this episode. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. no, I'm, yeah, I'm no, always this mind. bad, but you're, you're in rare form. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind, but the thing is, you're going to confuse us. Uh, you know, it's because, like I said, this is one episode that's referenced so often in the forum that I've encountered everyone who has said all these things before. <laughs> so I'm just channeling their confusion. Friday to Zeal. Yeah, I know. So, well, you know, that means I gotta explain that. Actually, no, you know, or this is a tool to help seek. you explain it by giving the wrong. Yeah. Answer. There's no need for a tool. He says it on the page. That's the thing that always frustrated me. Like it's yeah. right here. He says it. You are in causality. Of course, you are. People, people, you know, come from the mistaken assumptions that uh, first they don't even say about causality. They say about fate. Right. You know, think. Guts is outside fate, and that's why he can whatever. But that's not the case, uh, you know. It's not, and usually they tend to think also it's because uh, he was born from coughs. Yep, or that's what it was. Like that. But but no, no, Guts uh, is he born uh, dead? part of causality. That's what I thought that was. <laughs> <laughs> Guts is part of causality, and much like the Skull Knight, because he includes himself in the scene. So yeah, even them who are beyond the purely physical, you know. Uh, Part of the world are still merely shadows on the water, and of Guts, you know, doesn't like hearing that, and he's he basically he basically him, reacts you know, like Isidro. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. what I was about to say. He's saying just like Isidro, like you know, I do what I want. Nobody <laughs> tells me what to do. <laughs> and we, but I actually like what he tells him that he's basically uh, the Skull Knight. You know, called him the struggle, and you know, he said, "Remember that," you know. Our struggle, and I, I like that. The Skull Knight doesn't react to that, and he's like, you know, okay, you know, maybe you have a point. You know, at least that's what I take that panel. And then he tells me that, you know, I also like that. That you know, there's a take back to when Zod, you know, prophesized that uh, he would die, which was, you know, I guess based on a reasonable assumption. Zod yeah. knew that he was close to Griffith, and he told, well, if you close to that guy. When his dream crashes down, you you're gonna die because you know he's gonna sacrifice you. Yeah, and he basically tells him, "Well, remember that you know uh, we made this through alive." Also, you know it's a bit ballsy on Guts' part because the Skull Knight is the one who saved him. Yeah. So, he, he acknowledges that on he, the next he, page, but it, I do agree. Mia culpa. That it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like yeah. Well, it really wasn't you that did that, dude. But uh, this, I like his 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 rejection of this. It actually has shades of. When Shirke and Flora are talking in volume 24 and she's saying that, you know, Gut's mission is insane. You know, of course he can't make it. And then Flora points out that he's mm. still alive. And it's similar yeah. to that. It's kind of a, yes, he's on the course where he, you know, shouldn't be able to do these things, but he is doing these things, that kind of stuff. Yep. And, uh, how to say, you know, uh, you know, throughout that, uh, Puck is listening and also questioning what went on. And, uh, you know, Guts continues, and like you said, he points out that the Skull Knight helped them at the time, but that this time he'll save Casca by by his own strength. You know, and that's a a very potent panel, I think, where you see this picture of her at the back, and he's you know hitting his chest. Yeah. It's it's a very you know. Love that page. Yeah, it's very very potent panel. It reminds me of when he swore he would never leave her alone again. You know, it's very you know like yeah. his resolve is uh, ironclad. It's a declaration. And then we get that. Sh- 
Yeah. And then we get that shot of uh, Femtel's uh, helmet. What a shot. You know? Holy crap. Yeah, it's very, you know, it's uh, like it's um, it's beyond monstrous. It's, uh, yeah, it's fucking scary. Actually. Well, it's just like super, yeah. it's it's a little bit of light in an otherwise completely dark frame, you know? I just love the way light yeah. plays I and also, the curves. I also really yeah, love the shot it... of Guts before that, where just that little, that thin panel where he says, and then, and just the way his mouth is yeah. dropped and becomes small, and, you know, he looks like a, a sociopath. <laughs> I, fi- I yeah. find that panel a little weird. Uh, just the mouth shape seems a little weird well, to me. I, it's, well, I think it's supposed to be a little weird because, I mean, it's sort of like he's, you know, his lips are sort of curling, yeah. you know, and, you know, talk. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's, I also, it's interesting because yeah, it also allows them to fit into the picture. <laughs> like yeah, with there you go. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I also take it as uh, the lips curling, you know, in some kind of uh, rectus of hatred. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, real quick, just an aside, uh, when, you know, Puck doesn't know anything about Casca. He just knows Guts is determined to go get her. And at the vol- at the end of volume 17, he said, I can't wait to, to, to find out what kind of woman Casca is that can give Guts a sensation like this. And, you know, in these panels where Guts is describing how he and Casca made it through, Puck's paying, you know, perfect attention to those lines, you know. He's very curious yeah. about Casca. He did. I wonder if that'll play out. Well, actually, I'm sure it will play out once he actually, you know, meets the real Casca as well. Well, of course, yeah. of course. I also like Puck's acknowledgement so, of sort of uh, the the feelings Guts is expressing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it, you know, he just points out, you know, it's an intensity, but it's not just anger. And he just, you know, he doesn't explain it. He just says it's more complex. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really good little, you know, analysis within the narrative of, you know, what Guts is doing here. It's like he's mad. And he's feeling very intense, but it's, you know, it's not just anger at this point. Well, actually, I think what he's detecting is like the emotional equivalent of the duality within Guts, right? The fact yeah, that he wanting wants to, to protect or exactly. wanting to destroy. Yeah. And, and, and not just out of anger for, for both, you know, for various reasons. Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, like, I mean, even if we get, get down to it, I don't think he has even just anger against Griffiths, you know, there's a mix, exactly, yeah. Yeah. mix sure, of sure. things, you know, like, I mean, there's a lot of even there's a there. thing of betrayal, the pain, you know, so there's, there's many things. Anyway, you know, the Skull Knight, uh, you know, as eloquent as ever, just turned his back <laughs> to cast after <laughs> yeah. the decoration. <laughs> and, yeah. hmm, and then just, I'm out of here. Yeah. All right. Well, you see, yeah. I tried. And, <laughs> He just, of course, you know, even as he prepares to leave, he drops even more knowledge, explaining that through very small, you know, very uh, specific details, you know, how to say, you know, at at the junction point, you know, of Mm -hmm. time and space, and when these things happen, you know, things, you know, can happen. People can make a difference. And, you know, of course... Uh, the Skull Knight, as he's known to do, will try to gamble everything on that point to make a difference. Well, you know what's kind of funny so, here? This is kind of a dick move on Skull Knight's part, <laughs> because he tells him how it's impossible to do anything, but that's that's Skull Knight's entire M.O. Yeah. <laughs> he's always trying yeah. to do that, you know, but I mean, I guess he needed to see Guts was really serious about this before he told yeah, him, like, maybe yeah, you know he what, was just... maybe you can't, you can't, you're not going to change the result, but maybe you can do some things, maybe you can affect yeah. it a little bit. You know, it's it's possible he was even just testing him. Yeah. You know? But it's also interesting. I mean, maybe it's also sort of a thing where it's like it's. I think it's also just how crazy, you know. Even he knows his his gambits at these times yeah. are crazy and so unlikely and almost you know it's like he's 
he's charging at windmills, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like almost an acknowledgement. Yep. I agree. I agree with that. He knows uh, the odds are, you know, like, you know, overwhelmingly against them. And so he also tells him that even though it will be, uh, you know, mirroring the eclipse, it doesn't mean it has to be exactly the same. That there, there will be, you know, there are always limits to how, you know, these things can go in the physical world. And, you know, he also tells Guts, more importantly, that because of that brand which was carved onto him, uh, he may be able, because he now exists in the interstice between the physical and astral worlds, to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Even though it's just a small difference, even though it's such a, he's very slightly, but he's slightly outside of the fully controlled, fully, you know, uh, how to say, limited, you know, uh, part of the world. And, you know, because of that, he might be able to make a difference. So, you know, he tells him he's not just, maybe, maybe he isn't just a, a shadow on the water, but instead of fish that by breaching the water surface can create ripples and, you know, uh, how to say, change the way, you know, uh, the image, image, you know, appears on the, on that surface of the Like water. a jumping fish. Well, now, that's another, you know, of course, another <laughs> reference by Slam during uh, the first eclipse, which is not related to that one. It's not related to the, the analogy at first, but I, I think this second part has to be. I don't know. Two fish analogies and for them not to be related in some way. I don't know. It seems very coincidental to me. That's why we need to get Mira on the show to go like, you know what? I never noticed that. What a, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, uh, honestly, no, I don't, I don't think it's related. I mean, just, you know, the, the two, the two metaphors are close in some ways, but, uh, yeah. You think I they're, think you so. think because, they're generic enough that it was just a coincidence? Because the first one, the first one is, you know, about, uh, causality being a current, like a river, you know, and a jumping fish, like the skull knight, like a, a salmon, you know, uh, how to say, going up the river instead of going down. So going against the current and, you know, trying to, you know, so it's, you know, a commentary from Slan about the skull knight, what he's trying to do. And she also says that it doesn't really matter because he, he won't, won't ever change the way the water goes. Whereas here, it's a, a slightly different thing. It's, you know, saying that causality is the process by which the light of the moon is reflected on a water surface that is still so like that of a lake, but that guts might be a fish, you know, living in that lake and that by breaching the surface of the water, he might change the reflection. So it's, you know, I think those are different, even though they seem similar. The meaning, of course, is different between the two analogies, but I can derive some similarities because of the, I mean, come on, we're combining Two different metaphors well, different meanings know, with both yeah, fish and water, a, you know? I mean... Well, I'm sorry. That, yeah, there's a fish in both cases, but, you know, it's just... Well, to that, me, it's I think that's as far as it goes. It's, it's not just the, the fish metaphors. It's also the two characters that the metaphors are focusing mm-hmm. on. I think that gives it yeah. a little more... You know, it, it makes it interesting. I mean, however far you want to sort of read into it, but it's, it's just kind of... A, a cool little I, I coincidence, think, or it's also a nice little uh, way of referencing the two of them. It's sort of their I, place I, in the world. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think he's actually Jose. Like, it's more, uh, there's more similarities in what it says 
than in the actual metaphor. Sure. Like, I'm fine know, with that. God yeah. sends us, God sends us Skull Knight, uh, doing the same thing, which is going against the flow, going against the established order of things. You know, that the, the two things mean that, means that they can boss. You know, that the Skull Knight tries to go against the flow and that Guts might make a difference. They are, in both cases, what, they are splen- sort of splashing around, disrupting the, the natural flow yeah, of the water, but, the natural state of things. But, uh, yeah, but the actual metaphors are not, you know, like, I don't think they are meant to be connected. I think that's actually confusing, but, uh, yeah, I don't think they're meant to be directly connected, the metaphors themselves. So, anyway, you know, the final thing the Skull Knight says is, you know, also extremely important to this day and is pl- still yeah, yeah and plays a role even to this day and probably to the you know end of the series is that you know he wants guts that he can't do everything at once he can't fight the golden or rescue casca you know he has to you know do one or the other he can't do the two at once so he has to choose and he on that note he leaves and tells him He'll see him again at the holy ground. So, <laughs> you know, that leaves, you know, Guts, uh, what say, in thought, while Puck tells him he should have hitched a ride <laughs> to, to get, fa- to get there faster. And then Puck, you know, gets to realize, you know, that he felt like that guy had, uh, an elven aura about mm-hmm. him, you know, an aura of elf. Meanwhile, Guts is thinking to himself that he'll just save Casca, that his top priority, that is why he came there, and that that's what he'll go. But still, if it stands before him, then, you know, and by him, he means Femto. And then, you know, and it ends on that note, this does. And as the episode ends, you see Isidro actually running after Guts, <laughs> because he's, he's still around, and he hasn't given up. Um, one thing we didn't notice or note during this, and we, I think it's because we've mentioned the Skull Knight so many different times, is, you know, he brings with him to the scene this big enshrouding in, in fog, and it's there throughout the whole scene, and as he goes over the horizon, you know, the fog goes with him as well. Yeah. Kind of clearing the scene, this mysterious fog. It's something uh, he's often been associated with. Yeah. Uh, I'll take back over for uh, the, the last episode of this uh, volume, uh, Pillar of Flame, which is uh, all about Serpico and Farnese's uh, childhoods, or their various kind of origin stories and you know motivations and quirks about their personalities are kind of uh, touched on in this. It's, it's really kind of a microcosm of what we ultimately learn in Volume 22's flashbacks, uh, Snow Flames, uh, the two-part flashback. We get a little more expounded yeah. on their childhood. But here we just get glimpses of mm-hmm. Farnese living in her uh, family home, this mansion that overlooks the square where there were uh, funeral pyres, not funeral pyres, uh, pyres for heretics that were charged by the Holy See. I love the, the first, the, the episode title page we have, full screen, full page, with the way the, the fire plays with the light. And you know, that's a big part of this episode as well that she touches on how the shadows dance with the fire. You know, and just a child that kind of makes her excited, but it's also kind of horrifying, right? To, to imagine these things happening, being real people, not just shadows. But anyway, I just love the the imagery here, uh, the shadows cast by the the fire. Yeah, it's very you know, like the darkness and the way you know the, that first shot where you see the just the the window, her bed, and everything is dark. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty great. And Mira does something 
consistent as he usually does is whenever he's talking about a flashback, he has this black background, sometimes uses a silhouette to convey yep. the flashback. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first two pages yep. of this episode have that, and then it goes to current day, as we see, because we're at the base of the, the tower, as uh, more heretics are being burned. But basically, she's reminded of these things uh, as, as she's yeah. doing I, I, this. I like that it, you know, right away gives us a clue, you know, as to who she was, even from a very young age. Uh, I wouldn't say, yeah, maybe traumatized. Actually, I think we can yeah. say traumatized by these burnings and everything. And, you know, that's that's a, the beginning of the explanation of her fascination with fire and burning people, that kind of stuff. You know, that roar she heard and everything. So actually, yeah, I actually had not considered much about that, but it actually is quite revealing because her personality here, uh, as the episode opens, you know, she says that that sound and that fire terrified her. But as this, as the transition happens through this episode, she, once she embraces it and becomes a part of it, you know, she, she learns how to, you know, not be afraid of it by basically embracing yeah. it. Yeah. When she's in control, or at least feels she's in control of what, uh, made her fearful, yeah. you know, it gives her power. Exactly. So in modern day, they're burning more people, more heretics outside. Lots of them, looks like a, at least a dozen or so all around the tower. And as this is happening, uh, one of the, actually, it's uh, Jerome comments that, She's really, you know, gets into it, has have any trouble being courageous about throwing a torch at somebody who's tied up with sticks around them. And someone comments that she actually has a history, uh, kind of a le- legend in, in, in terms of her, even at a young age, was very uh, passionate about doing this because uh, of her, the position of her, her family home being right there at the square. Uh, Azan is keeping his distance with that as well. You can see just a really a small, a void-like silence as he watches, uh, overwatches what's happening here. Obviously, he disapproves, but he's not going to stand against it. Yeah. Farnese uh, remembers what Mazgus had said to her, and she says, you know, she will not be troubled by what's happening because she's just following God's work, and she shouldn't question it, even though it makes her feel strangely. I really like this encounter here. A small boy is uh, crying for his father, who's obviously one of the victims up there. And this deranged, eyes crossed, drunk guy bends over and says, "Like maybe it's in the maybe it flows in the blood. Maybe you should be up there too if your dad's a heretic." And a sword is yeah. Uh, yeah, he's getting real overzealous with this little kid. Right, this kid wavy hair. Why well, he can just be a bully? You know? yeah. I think that's what it's uh, all about. You know, of course, yeah. Um. Serpico or Isia's sword come across the guy's face and it's Serpico saying not to worry he was proven a child bears no guilt so basically Serpico kind of goes out of his way to disrupt this or to to, to break this up yeah uh, to save the boy of course uh, what I like about the, the whole scene though is the exchange here the the kid you know expecting some gratitude maybe but no of course the kid is even though he was saved by one of the soldiers it's still the soldiers who burned his dad so that's the reaction yeah, yeah. And Serpico understands that, walks away. Yeah, he do- he doesn't mind. He smiles at yeah. him. You know, I I, yeah. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. He gets it. But when he see gets close to one of the bodies, you know, it it sends uh, a chill through his spine. I guess is how I would determine that reaction. And he walks yeah. away from uh, the scene, saying he's feeling ill. Obviously, he's having a flashback of a kind, and we don't know the details until later. But Farnese still takes a moment to chide him for his lack of a spine around these things. Which is, of course, ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, uh, I really like this this scene we have here. Uh, I think Jerome was doing two things here. He's, you know, wants to learn a little bit more about Serpico, uh, but also uh, I think he's just 
kind of <laughs> he's kind of escaping his duties as well. He kind of took the lead from yeah. Serpico, right? And he even says I, as much. I like that. Well, he also so, uh, I I, I liked how he took note of what uh, Serpico did for the kid. Yeah, I don't yeah. think I don't think he thought much of him before that, and then he saw he you know he showed him something there, and mm-hmm. you know he literally in the dark horse he goes whoa, just the fact that he just pulled his sword on that guy, but still very calmly uh, took care of the situation. It's yeah. a very you know I don't know how to word this properly, but it's a very casual scene here as we sit down away from the story's progress for a moment to learn a bit about the characters. That doesn't happen a hell of a whole lot in this series, particularly this section of it where everything's running at breakneck speed towards the incarnation yeah. ceremony. It's a very brief moment of kind of, we like, literally, you know, yeah, we literally breath. just had like the most, arguably the most important conversation in the entire series <laughs> from an information, you know, dissemination, dissemination standpoint. And now we're going to have like some, you know, a little growing out, a little getting to know each other, you know, some yeah. chit chat between comrades here who didn't know each other that well before. And as I've said before, I really like, I just like Jerome's carefree attitude, you know? Yeah. The Holy Iron Shade Knights are supposed to represent, like, you know, the, you know, utmost of the Holy See, you know, filled with the best of the nobility. But really, he's just like a, a lazy guy who, you know, wants to get through and get through this and move on with his life. And he's cynical, too. Yeah. He's got, like, a good, like, yeah. with a sense of humor. Sense of humor, you know, yeah. Good yeah, when he's like teasing him about, you know, being, you know, friend of children, you know, and says it's very knightly of him. But he also has a bit of a personality shift here. And just his, his reaction, his understanding of Serpico changes here. He goes from carefree to serious in this in this scene a little bit as he learns a little bit about Serpico's past. Anyway, Serpico yeah. says that he's, his mother was condemned as a heretic and she was burned three years ago. Uh, earlier in the episode, I think they also mentioned the three years ago uh, thing. Yes. Uh, the yeah. reason for- Farnese. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, yeah, Farnese, the reason she was uh, chosen to be the head of the Orion Chain Knights is because she played a role in uh, burning, uh, you know, the, the heretics three years ago. Yeah. So it all ties up to uh, the flashback we'll get to see. Right. And there's also one thing that we didn't mention, I think, is that uh, some soldiers says that every time there's burnings, Sepico uh, leaves the field, you know, so it's. It's it made clear that it's something that affects him personally every time yeah, right. he has trouble st- stomaching this. Spectacles. And that shot of him is great. That's a very that reminds me of those shots of guts from before when you know he's remembering the eclipse. Usually, Only the atmosphere yeah. of it is very much yeah. cooler, you know. Yeah, Sepico is very like I mean, as as he he's is, much you know, colder it's very cool. when he's Calm, saying yeah. it, but it's yeah. uh, it's just usually those kind of shots, you know, are reserved for guts. So it's interesting to see see it on another character and it sort of puts uh, Serpico at the forefront. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> um, <laughs> Jerome talks about um, saying that he, you know, was he was ditching his duties as well, which I thought was funny, seeing his taking yeah. the lead. I, I, I like that he, when uh, Serpico reveals, you know, what happened to his mother, uh, Jerome is very... Too much know, information. <laughs> He's like, oh, <laughs> he knows, like, he knows, uh, he just stumbled upon something, uh, you know, too big for him. So he, he's, how to say, ill at ease and, yeah. you know, takes up the first opportunity to leave. But he, he also does it very formally, which, you know, Serpico points out and says, you know, there's no need to act aristocratic around me. And says, yeah, the ladies say that a lot too. Well, that was funny. He, he knows how to use the big words whenever he needs to, but, you know, he doesn't need to in this scenario. Yeah. Anyway, Serpico departs, uh, <laughs> putting his mask down as he leaves. 
And uh, Jerome thinking there's a lot more to that guy than I thought, basically. Yep. <clears throat> and he, he also puts together the three years ago thing, which kind of reminds the audience that, you know, the death of Serpico's mother corresponds to Farnese's heretic hunt. So yep. pretty obvious what happened there. Mm-hmm. And of course, we get more specific details in volume 22. I always wondered if Miura had ever intended to just let this be as it was, and then later decided, hmm, I could add more detail with a flashback, you know, in volume 22. It's just a, an opportunity he saw and then went for it. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about this earlier with uh, when Skull Knight was making note of Puck, actually, and just sort of what he did with Cheech, and just sort of adding yeah. that detail and sort of making it so that, like, fleshing out a part of Gut's character and sort of like, you know, you know, it's like he was always special. It's mm-hmm. not just something that, you know, happened to happen. You know, he had, you know, yeah. sort of pre-establishing that sort of relationship already for him, yeah. you know, but in a way you wouldn't think of. So I, I do like when he, yeah, does these episodes, these little side stories or flashback episodes that are sort of self-contained that give us that extra information about a character. Yeah, it's, inf- it's funny you mentioned Cheech because uh, Mira said at the time that he had always wanted to fill that gap, you know, you know, uh, the, the, the time we didn't see of between Guts leaving uh, Gambino's band and yeah. uh, when we see him again. And I think it's the same same case for Farnes and Sepico. Uh, yeah, I, I think he wanted to, uh, Jose, fill in a bit the blanks uh, of their life. And so he did this, you know, at some time. And a few, you know, a year later or so, he he must have felt that he needed to uh, go more in detail. You know, something he did, never did for Easy Draw, for example, because he probably felt uh, there was n- nothing much more to say than he had already. But I yeah. think for them, he felt the need to to go. So yeah, I I don't think he planned at this time to expand on it later. I mean, not necessarily nothing uh, very clearly drawn, but uh, yeah, that he he felt he needed to at some point well in a way it really was sort of because i mean i'm just if you remember yeah when it came into play you know uh it was sort of but did it come between the end of you know griffith's rebirth and then before we started again with uh basically him meeting guts on the hill of swords isn't that when it came and then they placed it at the end of volume 22 yeah indeed it was originally at uh, the beginning in in a way it was also a transition you know between you know what we had just seen and this sort of this new beginning we were going to have and in that sense they were kind of being upgraded to main characters i mean it's sort of yeah i mean it's a way to look at it you know because mm. it's like they were they were part of this and there's plenty of characters like you know previously let's just use as an example jill that are, she's only part of lost children and they could have maybe only been part of this and then gone away well, but, of conviction yeah i i, I have to yeah that's a say a nice theory, but Mira already like he always planned to have them become important characters. Right. And he said he said as much in interviews and such. So, uh, while I I agree that uh, it was a way to boost their characters because yeah. uh, he knew their roles were going to get bigger. But I think even in this episode when uh, Sepico starting about Jerome and such, it's already a way for Mira to. Uh, insert some personal background because he already knew at that time that this guy was not just going to be... Yeah, he didn't even necessarily need to do it, but it was just something that's interesting and sort of gives them, it sort of gives you more of a background with them, like, you know, something a little bit stronger like what we already had with Guts, with his childhood and everything. To actually see it. Exactly. 
Uh, the next scene is back with Farnese in her room. I like how it starts by showing the, the window design. Even that has a, you know, Falcon of Light imagery in the design of it. Yep. And she's lying down, uh, staring at the flames of her in, her in the fireplace and having a bit of a flashback, saying she re- the flames make her remember that night when she first threw her torch. Um, she's describing how, how the, 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 um, she always knew that there was some horror, uh, beneath the, the skin of the world, as she t- calls it some terrible thing behind it and how she uh, was the fear kind of dominated her until she learned to uh, become part of it and, and dance with it. Throwing the fire makes the, uh, the shadows dance with it. And so she kind of embraces that as, as part of herself. And then she wasn't afraid anymore. And she even got commendations for being so young and being part of the <laughs> pyres. What, what I like is uh, you can tell who she's, you know, was being manipulated by the morons in the crowd. Yeah. You know, where, where you see, even the way it's drawn, you see the guy pointing, you know, with the mouse. It's uh, very, very telling what's, what's happening. There's this, you know, little girl who's scared and confused and they just, you know, egg around into... It's very demonic, too. Just, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, Not supposed to be very trustworthy. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, it explains how she, you know, became like that and like even even the final panel uh, of her looking like as a girl looking all weird and yeah. you know well, and is any transition she's like grabbing her yeah. stomach and she's being praised but you can also tell that you know it's not right you know she also feels obviously not right about this you know yeah well the, the, she's the, being praised the sp- for it the specific language she says that you know it must have been the heat of the flame she could sp- feel a strange warmth i mean i think yeah is she not basically turned on and that's that basically the, the beginning of her sadism yeah yeah she's she's getting all hot and bothered right. you know basically even as a child yeah, that's, that's, yeah. and so yeah anyway and that transition into her you know masturbating on a bed yeah. thinking about burning people well yeah right. the i mean it's just such a it's not even it's almost a photorealistic shot of, you know, the burning corpse, you know, there's nothing interpretive, there's nothing like, like earlier, you know, they were almost just like shadows and figures, you know, in the light and the darkness, but here it's like, you're just seeing like a face burning off into a skull, you know, it's very striking, yeah. uh, a contrast with what she's doing. And of course, this is all yeah. played against what Mazgas had told her, you know, she's, now she's, she still has these questions about feeling like maybe she's in the wrong path, doing something that's wrong, which is what she brought against Mazgas. Yeah, well, she she knows she's. Uh, I I think it's even a bit, you know, Jose. It's even a bit different from what she went for to Mosgus for mm-hmm. because, you know, she knows she's being turned on by this, and I like that. You know, as she, you know, masturbates at this, then immediately afterwards she cries, and she, like you said, she says, oh, "I'm not wrong. I'm not doing something wrong." But she she knows deep inside yeah. that she's not normal. That she's not. She knows she's broken, mm-hmm. basically. She knows she's broken. She knows this isn't normal. And I think, uh, yeah, all this from her childhood to how it, you know, eventually became, you know, an arousal for her and down to this, I think shows that, yeah, she's, she's broken. It's a, just an explanation, a window into her mind and into her trauma, I guess. Yeah. That does it for volume 18, guys. That's a wrap. Mm-hmm. So we will be back uh, with uh, Volume 19, which has one of the best series, best covers. I think Azil will vouch for that. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Very memorable. So we'll be back in a couple weeks to discuss that. Thanks for listening, and see you later. See you. Later. Later.